This episode is brought to you by Verve Super, Australia's first ethically invested super founded by women for women plus. Verve actively seeks investments that lead the way in gender equality, carbon efficiency and sustainability while we're striving for the best financial returns for members. Join Verve Super, an easy way to build wealth and invest in a better world. This is general advice. Consider if right for you. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about the Epstein list, South Africa's case against Israel, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, January 26th and the 2024 awards season so far. But first we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into the actual news, what is your personal personal headline of the week of the first record back. I, we've had so much time apart and actually we were supposed to come back next week but we were so desperate. I know we have a problem. We do have a problem with ourselves and each other that we're like do you want to just come back a week early? We've got we so much to chit chat about. I cannot shut up. I, I will not be silenced. I feel like my best bit of the last month or so off has been that I actually ditched family Christmas this year. I said, I'm not doing it. I went overseas. I had a week away. I just read books and lay on the beach. I read Good Material by Dolly Alderton. It was probably my favourite summer read so far. Highly recommend. Um, But I've just had a really nice period of time off. What about you? I love that. I also love that you just said no to family Christmas. You kind of don't think that's an option. No. And I think I'll do it again. You put it on the table. (laughs) I think I'm going to do it Was your family upset? Yeah. (laughs) what do they say like how did you maneuver that I just like I have you know divorced parents so it comes from two angles as well um but you know I they understood it wasn't it didn't go down well at first but after a few serious conversations it was I'm changing my plan so accept it or or die you know what I mean like there (laughs) was but you went to Thailand didn't you yes I did I went for a week with my auntie who's not got kids not married and so we just had the best two gals time it was really nice that's really nice and you went away as well I did I went to New York I had the best time I'm so glad I did it I I know I like sat on the fence for ages last year about if I was gonna go or not so glad I did it is such a fun city the best nights out, some of the best food, some of the best time with my friends. But I will say, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, it's really fast paced. It's really intense. And you kind of forget. And then you get there and you're like, whoa, this place is insane. And I am so exhausted. At the time zone is the complete opposite. And so I got home and I felt like I needed a holiday after that holiday. I get it. I get it. It just takes a a long time for your body to clock back in. And so expensive. Yes. It was ridiculous. I've seen that with the prices of a coffee. It ends up being like 10 bucks with the conversion and tipping and everything. 10 bucks? I wish. $18. You're fucked. I'm not kidding. $18 by the time you've had like tax and tip on top of it, $18 Australian for a coffee. A bad coffee. That's absolutely (laughs) cooked robbery. It is. But in saying that, wouldn't change a thing. That's lovely. Best time. Oh, well, Could not inspiring. stay any longer. Wow. Wanderlust. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get into it. The conspiracy theorists that gave fuel to the 2019 meme, Epstein didn't kill himself, are looking pretty good right now in light of the publication of Epstein's list. Great headline, Sarah. Thank you. 
So in the first week of Jan, the courts unsealed and made public over 100 names of Epstein's victims, his friends and his associates. The documents were filed as part of victim Virginia Guffrey's 2015 defamation lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell, who was Epstein's longtime girlfriend and co-conspirator. But before I even get into the list, I want to go back and give as much context as I can around this. I have gone down an absolute rabbit hole. In a nutshell, if you like don't know who Jeffrey Epstein is, he was a millionaire, possibly billionaire hedge fund manager. But I want to go into his early life a little bit as well in the run up to this. So he grew up in Coney Island, New York, and he didn't actually come from like generational wealth or a trust fund or anything like that. I saw actually in the Miami Herald when they described his childhood, they said that he was poor, smart and desperate to be rich. And he was a child genius. Like he was, especially with maths, and he ended up skipping two grades just because they were like, he's so advanced. And then he went to New York University, but he didn't graduate. That's interesting because then when he was 21, without a degree, he somehow swindled himself into becoming a prep teacher at Dalton, which is in New York. It's based in Manhattan. It's a very upper class prep school. It's pretty much like a funnel to the Ivy Leagues. Like it's in Gossip Girl, isn't it? Like that I, sort of is vibe. Is that where they film I part feel, of it? I feel like I know it from that. Maybe but, I'm wrong. I mean, I don't think it's in Gossip Girl. Like I don't think they say, but I think it's like Gossip Girl would be inspired by schools yes, like that, if yes. that makes sense. So I know this is a bit off topic, but I think it does just paint a really interesting picture from these early days. I read an article in the New York Times that interviewed some of his past students while he was working there. And in the article, it spoke about how surprised they were when this new teacher rocked up and he just kind of ignored the school's strict dress codes. So he would go to class to teach wearing these like huge fur coats and like gold chains and like shirts that were open. I mean, I guess it was the 70s, but like... It's not appropriate for a teacher. Not appropriate for a teacher. One student in the article started recalling about when he showed up to a party where the students were there drinking and then... The rest of the article just really spoke. The recounts from students was that he just showed a lot of very persistent attention, they say, on the girls in his classroom. Mm -hmm. He was eventually dismissed as a teacher for not being up to snuff, is what it said. Apparently not for the fact he doesn't have a degree. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. But the stint at Dalton was important because... It had him tutoring the son of Bear Stern CEO Alan Greenberg, which led him to a job at an investment bank after that. So that set him up on his journey to become a hedge fund manager to the rich and powerful. So despite not even being a registered investment professional, by 2002, the New York Magazine was doing write-ups on him saying that this guy had a motor brain and eventually none of his clients had portfolios smaller than US $1 billion. Whoa. And this he's still quite young yeah. by this stage as well. I think one of his first clients was Leslie Wexner, who was the owner of Victoria's Secret. Yes, I know this name. Yep. Yeah. So it seems like a pretty major jump, but that's kind of the, all the information we have. No one really knows the details of how and where his money came from. Officially, he was worth more than half a billion dollars in cash He had investments and six properties, which included a New Mexico ranch, a Florida villa, a Paris apartment, two Virgin Island islands, we'll come back to the islands, and a New York mansion. So his wealth, they think, also would have extended to diamonds and to art. We're not entirely sure. Also off topic, but fascinating, he donated millions and millions to places like Harvard 
uh, for different maths and science projects. Of particular interest to him was eugenics, which is a very discredited science of controlling populations by breeding practices. Incredibly problematic. Incredibly problematic. Like, oh, that is a whole different yep. rabbit hole that I did go down yep. but we don't have time for. And cryonics. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Cyronics, cryonics, whatever. But that's essentially the deep freezing of bodies with a view of one day reviving them. Like what they were doing to Walt Disney. Yeah. (laughs) So reports have since emerged that he actually once hoped to seed the human race with his DNA by impregnating women at his vast New Mexico ranch. Oh my God. This is so much deeper than I understood. I think everyone is across this story. Yeah. But I think when you get into it, as the layers you go down and the rabbit hole you sort of get into, it's it's so much deeper than you can imagine. It's really, really interesting. And I know not all of that information is necessary, but I just think it paints... A picture. And we want a broad picture. I yeah. want a more panoramic perspective on this. Please. Who is this guy? And then, of course, I need to point out who Ghislaine Maxwell is because she was also very interesting. And I did go down a rabbit hole on her too, but to sum it up as quickly as I can, Ghislaine Maxwell was the toast of high society, essentially, like both in London and in New York. She was filthy, filthy, filthy rich. Interesting background on her is that her father was the media tycoon Robert Maxwell, who... On him, like, this guy rose from very extreme poverty, from a Czechoslovakian Jewish settlement. Most of his family were murdered in the Holocaust. He became a British Army war hero, then an academic publishing magnate, a Labour MP, and eventually the owner of Daily Mirror, one of the UK's biggest selling newspapers. He was also very widely known as a, this is quoted here, a draconian father who abused his children both physically and verbally. Now, Maxwell was, Ghislaine Maxwell was very much known for being an abuser herself and for helping Epstein in his sexual abuse scheme. We're going to circle back to that, but I just thought it was important to note who she is. Yeah, absolutely. So what has Epstein been accused of? Okay, so in 2019, Epstein was accused and arrested on federal sex trafficking and conspiracy charges connected to the sexual abuse of dozens of girls in his homes between the years 2002 and 2005. But this wasn't even his first charge. Back in 2008, he faced similar charges that resulted in a very controversial plea deal. Mm -hmm. However, that original charge back in 2008 is what then kick-started an investigation by the Miami Herald in 2018, which then prompted a new investigation in New York City by the FBI. But pretty much what Epstein started was a sex trafficking ring of underage girls where he would entice young girls to visit his homes and engage in sex acts and then pay them hundreds and hundreds of dollars in cash. To maintain and increase the supply of his victims, he would ask some of his victims to then recruit additional girls. Basically, it was like a sex trafficking pyramid scheme. Yep. That's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, it paints a very clear picture. Yeah. So the way it worked is that he was very calculated in the girls he would pick and they would pick girls who, for the most part, come from very difficult home situations, that were very young, that they knew were in need of money, that were more vulnerable he would also promise these girls like networking connections or that they could he could kickstart their modeling careers or invite them to the right social circles and parties and introduce them to the right people blah 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 but as his sex trafficking ring grew Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine started lending girls to their friends and that's what brings me to his 
infamous island. So the island was called Little St. Jeff and it was located in the US Virgin Islands. People who were the some of the world's most rich and powerful would come visit him and they would get there on a jet. Get this. Guess what his jet was called? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> I That's hard. Lolita Express. Fuck off. No, no, I'm not fucking kidding you. Lolita Express, which if you don't know what Lolita is, like that's a very famous book about... The grooming of an underage girl. Yeah. Complete like, predatory behaviour. Like, be pedo- it is blatantly sight. about pedophilia. Yeah. And like reports say when I look into this island, like literally people called it, the locals would call it pedophile island. So considering all this now, what happened to Epstein? So... Epstein killed himself in 2019 in his jail cell while awaiting trial. Although, of course, with (laughs) so many powerful men whose necks were on the line, and, you know, if he went to trial and started talking, like, you can imagine the conspiracy theory that he didn't kill himself but was killed got a lot of traction at the time. Yes, for clear reason. Yeah. Yeah. As for Ghislaine Maxwell, she is serving a 20-year prison sentence for her involvement. Now, I want to know, like, what is with this list? What is Epstein's list? Yeah. So, recently a judge unsealed a new set of filings from a court case tied to Jeffrey Epstein, which is now colloquially and quite misleadingly known as the list, Epstein's list. The list, to actually be more accurate, is dozen documents from a 2015 court case, as I mentioned before, in all those documents, it's not like a straight up list. It was like within all these documents, different names are mentioned over 100. I think it's like roughly 150 names of who his associates were or people that he'd mentioned. It's not entirely groundbreaking, this list, because we were aware of some names before this, but it does just give us more information as to more who was in his social orbit. But it is important to note that although many on the list are guilty or complicit, not everyone is. Like, some people are victims, some people don't have any relation. Like, So associating the list with a name doesn't necessarily mean incriminating, basically. Yeah, and I think yeah. that got really confused on social media where people thought it was, like, a client list. It's yeah. not. Yeah. It's not a client list. We don't know what all the names on there, to the degree of their involvement. I mean, I'll get more into it, but, like, that's been... Definitely more of the meme side of things yeah. than what's actually happened. So who is on the list? Well, okay. Bill Clinton was on the list. We kind of knew of this before, but he was recorded taking several plane trips with Epstein, although no wrongdoing has actually been confirmed, although an accuser did testify as part of their case that Epstein told her that Clinton likes them young. Fuck. Donald Trump mentioned a few times in these documents, but again, no wrongdoing has been proven or documented. However, in his own words, he once said he had known Epstein for 15 years and that he's a terrific guy who likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. That's a direct quote from Trump. That's not even in the list. That's no. like something he'd already offered up prior. Hey, yeah. And he would. Prince Andrew was mentioned for wrongdoing and for groping young girls. That was pretty blatant. And then also, I thought interesting, the attorney and former Trump impeachment counsel, Alan Dershowitz. So he was mentioned and accused of having sexual relations with a minor. He's actually posted a video denying that. In terms of other celebs, other names that have been brought up in these documents include Kate Blanchett, Naomi Campbell, 
David Copperfield, Cameron Diaz, Leonardo DiCaprio, Michael Jackson, Kevin Spacey, Bruce Willis, Stephen Hawking. This is this is the one that was a lot of content was put out about Hawking. Can you what happened uh, there? I mean, I think everyone was just pretty shocked by yeah. that name. I think everyone's shocked by every name on this, but Stephen Hawking, when I looked into it, I'm like, what? in what context was he mentioned? His name was included in a 2015 email in which Epstein had told Ghislaine to offer an award to any of the friends or family who prove it was a false allegation that Hawking had participated in an underage orgy at his island. Okay. All right. So that's insane when you think yeah, about it. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to take it all in because it's so – it is a really – complex thing where you're going, okay, they're all involved in these lists. It's this big network. It's this big web and they're all included in it. And it's people like Kate Blanchett that disturb me more, Cameron Diaz, but you don't know what extent to which they're mentioned. No, exactly. And again, you have to take this with a grain of salt. Some of the names are just on there because they're victims or staff. Like literally there's examples of just staff recall him just mentioning a celebrity's name is his friend. And then he's on then they're on and the, then they're list, on the list. Yeah. Or that they visited his home or his island, but without any indication that they knew what was going on or any wrongdoing. It might not have even been the island. It could have just been his New York home. Yeah. Like a good example is Naomi Campbell, and she's spoken out about this. This was even before this list came out. And she said that she was introduced to Epstein by an ex-boyfriend because Epstein would always sit front row at the Victoria's Secret shows. But, like, that was the extent of their... Totally. And then uh, Kate Blanchett, like, that one really surprised me. Again, we have no idea of the extent of involvement or if there's any involvement. I do think it's really interesting, though, when you look at Ricky Gervais's Golden Globe speech from a few years ago. It is interesting now watching that back and watching the cameras cut directly to Kate Blanchett. Insane. So strange. So strange. I mean, I just think... This story is horrifying. That is such a summed up version of it. There's so much more to it. And I just think it will be really interesting to see how this is used in the 2024 election from both sides. My only concern, I think, is that people already know all of this about Trump. I know it goes beyond that, but people know so much about Trump already and they clearly don't care. So I don't know where the threshold would be that anyone gives a shit about his conduct. Yeah. So I I struggle with that, but I am interested to see how it pans out over the next few months anyway. Yeah, agreed. I also think it's important to note that not all names have been unsealed yet. So there could also be more to come Mm. on this. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. South Africa has brought a case against Israel in the International Court of Justice over an intent to commit genocide in Gaza. Here's everything you need to know. First, I want to start with just like an overview generally of what has been happening in Gaza. There's been more than 100 days of Israeli bombings, mass killings, and what I would describe as a campaign of genocide against Palestinian people. The death toll for Palestinians has surpassed 25,000. This includes almost 10,000 children. More than 8,000 people are still missing and are believed to be buried under the rubble. More than 62,000 people have been wounded and 2.3 million people face extreme hunger. I think one of the biggest stories that continues to unfold has been South Africa taking Israel to the International Court of Justice over this intent to commit genocide in Gaza. Just to pause on that, like, 
when I first read about this, the first thing I thought was, that's quite ironic. Yeah. From South Africa. But then I, I think it's actually more symbolic. Absolutely. It's politically significant because, as we know, South Africa is a former apartheid state. So this is a, a real historic, significant moment to see this transition and to see South Africa bringing Israel and attempting to bring them to justice in the ICJ and pursue this case, especially considering no Western powers have no. supported their endeavour in the ICJ as well. So what is the ICJ? So what is the, like, that's the International Court of Justice. Yes. Like, can you explain that? Yep. So I'll refer to it as the ICJ just to get it a bit shorter, but it's basically the highest legal body of the United Nations. Now, I want to make a clear distinction between the ICJ and the ICC, mm-hmm. which is the International Criminal Court. So the ICJ deals with disputes between nations. So the International Criminal Court, the ICC, has the legal authority to investigate and prosecute individuals for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. Just from the top, let's mentioned that while we're talking about the ICJ here, the ICC has opened up a separate investigation into both Israeli forces and Hamas militants alleged violations of international humanitarian law. Okay, so they're so both going after Israel there's concurrent, a bit right Yes, there's concurrent matters happening here. But what we're focusing today is on the ICJ, which is dealing with state versus state. Mm-hmm. So I want to explain jurisdiction a little bit here too, which I know is a bit of a complex legal topic, but at its... At its Stay with us. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I always think we throw around these words, right? And people go, oh yeah, I sort of know what that means. But I think it's important just to like, just to clarify a little bit. It's essentially the power to make a legal decision and judgment. And it sets the extent or limitations of how far that power goes. So it is much more complex than that. But jurisdiction could be we live in New South Wales, so we reside under New South Wales law and then above that federal Commonwealth law. Yeah. That's the jurisdiction and depending on the issue, that's where we fit under. Mm-hmm. But then you've also got things like drug court, children's court, then you've got district supreme. So jurisdiction operates at different levels, but it's basically setting out who has the authority to make different determinations on different laws and who does that apply to. Okay. So, yeah. So the ICJ... So it's the structure, essentially. Exactly. It's cool. the structure and limitations of power. Okay. So how... How does this case work then? So essentially, South Africa is arguing that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, and they are asking the ICJ to intervene and stop Israeli military action in Gaza. Hmm. So, But, like, how does this case work? Like, how do you legally establish that a genocide is occurring? How do you prove it? So complicated. The threshold is high. It's very difficult, but I'm going to break it down quite simply, I hope. So the crime of genocide is covered in the 1948 United Nations Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. It it does what it says on the box. It's exactly Mm -hmm. what it's titled. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important because it's not only criminalising or putting sanctions against these actions – it's also saying if there's an intent to commit these actions, that's punishable too. Yeah. So realistically, and, and I want to go back to this jurisdiction point earlier too, the convention requires all ratifying states to comply. So you don't have to be in direct connection to the case to bring the matter to the ICJ. And that's why, so the ICJ has the jurisdiction to hear the matter under the convention, mm-hmm. but South Africa as a ratifying state and Israel as a ratifying state both can be party to this. So that's why South Africa is able to bring the issue to the ICJ right. against Israel. Okay, that makes more sense. Because yeah. I was like, what? why? It's confusing. <laughs> it's like- co- international law is very confusing and very loose, I would mm. describe it as. Mm. The crucial point that the South African government is arguing is that Israeli forces were aware that their bombings were causing mass civilian casualties. 
They're pointing out how the humanitarian needs of Palestinian people are being blatantly ignored, like the water supply was cut off, the lack of fuel, medicine, resources. Yeah. And that being used as a tactic. Absolutely. Well. This yeah. is, you know, starvation is a tool of warfare. And this is really crucial as well. South Africa also had a very particular focal point on speeches and quotes given by Israeli political leaders and soldiers that pointed yeah. to language that advocated for the erasure of Gaza. I saw this because it's also like, it's one thing to look at what is happening mm. and the physical actions of it. And it's another thing to take direct quotes from their leaders that say, yeah, we are doing that. Yeah. Absolutely. Including for the <laughs> Prime Minister. Like, literally, they're pointing to reference to Palestinians as human animals that need to be eliminated. Like, the language is genocidal. That's a quote that well. is like, a real quote. Yeah. It is absolutely. Like, and you know what's really important? A lot of people listening will never have heard this because the Western media is simply not covering it. Mm. It is disturbing the lack of knowledge and education that exists around this. Yeah. And so, the, this language was used as evidence in the ICJ of an intent to commit genocide. Now, Israeli government has rejected all of the allegations that have been made. They then had the opportunity to put forward their case, and that was on the 12th of January. And basically they stated that attacks on Gaza have been directed at Hamas soldiers. They Not say at civilians. Yeah. And that's just like yeah, fallout. Ex- exactly. They're saying that civilian casualties have been an unfortunate consequence of military action and in an urban environment. They're saying, you know, we're in a metropolitan area. This is just the consequence of what we're trying to do to Hamas and really, really leaning into that argument that the West has really promoted and pushed, which is like this right to defend itself. Yeah. Really- and that the quotes were out of context, right? Yep. That's what they're claiming. So what are the outcomes if South Africa wins this case? Can the ICJ actually enforce anything? Yeah, here's the big fucking problem. And that's (laughs) that's that these decisions take years. So what we're actually looking at here for the ICJ, like we've seen decisions that are, you know, from uh, cases from four years ago that haven't been decided yet. We're not looking right now at the ICJ handing down a decision because it's also something where history needs to tell us if it was genocide. Like that's what they'll say. Like a lot of these cases require so much evidence to make these wide scale determinations. Like currently we're looking at expansions in the area and this just escalating beyond control at the moment. So we're so far from over that it's impossible without some hindsight to make these large-scale determinations. Interesting. What we're really looking at here is whether the ICJ makes an interim order for Israel to stop. Halt, ceasefire, we need to gather evidence. We believe that, you know, there is enough. here, yeah. Yes, to say that you need to stop your action so that we can actually look at this. And I, I just want to say, like, I think that there's sort of a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about what the purpose of this ICJ case is and when it's not enforceable, what what it does. I think that it's really important to note that these, like, legal structures are more about validating the experience of Palestinian Mm. people because what I see as the International Court of Justice doing is saying that when we've got the US blatantly voting against a ceasefire, when we've got no Western nation stepping up to the plate and the only thing we have is South Africa and their government stepping up and saying in court and having judges and lawyers discuss the impacts of Israel's attack in Gaza and actually validating that and emphasising that and highlighting that in a formal court of law. And I think that what it's trying to really do is say to all of the other nations, like, shame on you because you have chosen allyship and the arming of Israel over human rights. I I agree. I think that has been one of the most confronting things about this whole story is that it's just a huge example 
of how political ties and trade and whatever else is always going to be more important than the actual ethics of anything. And I don't think we're used to, with the states involved, with Australia's involved, like, I don't think we are used to seeing this so blatantly from Western nations. And the media. And I think it's really what I think this teaches all of us, and it's been a lesson that I know we've learned over the past couple of months as well, is that it's really about what can't be taken back here is that I think Western nations see themselves as morally superior. Yeah, and that's this, my point. Yeah, this has been something where it's kind of like we've always known that the media has an agenda and that there's these like really clear ties and networks where power kind of determines what we see through the lens of this, like these mass media communications, yeah. right? But what we're experiencing is in, in true honest, transparent form, the failure to humanise Palestinian people and the choice of financial benefit and gain and siding with superpowers mm. over basic human rights and basic humanitarian causes. And it's, it's really disturbed most people, I think, rightfully. But there's also been a lot of silence. This episode is brought to you by Verve Super. I am so glad Verve is our sponsor this week and I really appreciate the sort of insights and sort of the passion they bring for women-founded businesses. Yeah. I am a women-founded business. Are. Me, myself, I'm a female entrepreneur. I, I don't like using the E-word, but I actually should lean into it because it's really important because I think that there's a specific bias that women-led businesses face, but I do think that we also bring really unique qualities and perspectives and insights to business. And I really think that the landscape for female founders is going to be changing over the next few years. And I think that businesses like Verve are really changing the way women can operate in business and empowering us. And I think that's why we are all for Verve, which is Australia's first ethically invested super founded by women for Women Plus. The world of finance wasn't built for women, but Verve is here to change that. In a first for superannuation, Verve seeks out investments in Australian companies that are leading the way in gender equality and inclusion. And the best part is it's really simple to join. Join Verve Super, an easy way to build wealth and invest in a better world. Head to vervesuper.com.au to learn more. Information provided is general. Verve Super is issued by ETSL. Read the PDS and TMD at vervesuper.com.au and consider if right for you. Yeah. Gypsy Rose Blanchard is free from jail, married, and the internet's new favourite influencer. This story is so insane. It's my entire TikTok feed right now. Same. Mm. What's interesting is like when I've spoken to friends about it and stuff like that, I'd be like, oh my God, is your feed also all Gypsy Rose Blanchard? They're like, no. Really? So some people I don't think are on that same algorithm. So I am going to give the story. Actually, even if it is your algorithm right now, but you don't actually know the full story. Hopefully this explains it a little bit. But pretty much, Gypsy is a woman from Louisiana who spent her whole childhood being told by her mother, Dee Dee, that she was terminally ill. And she was told she had leukemia, seizures, developmental issues. She was pretty much told that she would only ever have the mental capabilities of a seven-year-old. And given the above, her mother was then, you know, had to control every aspect of her life. Like, she was the primary carer. So she controlled what Gypsy wore, where she went, how she moved, what she ate, who she spoke to. They were incredibly codependent. And you, I don't know, have you seen the act? Have you seen the movie? Yes. Based on the, with Joey King? Yeah. yeah. Highly recommend if you haven't seen this movie, but it really it does a really good job at painting this, like, mother-daughter relationship. Also, Gypsy looked really sick. She carried an oxygen tank with her everywhere. She had a feeding tube with her. She was pale. She was thin. She shaved her head. Her teeth were kind of fucked up from the medication she mm -hmm. was on. Her mother also dressed her to look like a toddler, like... 
she would wear costumes a lot and like Cinderella wigs on her hair on the time. And she spoke in this high-pitched voice like a child. Mm. And how unwell Gypsy was and the fact she was terminally ill was also very well known, like not only in like their neighborhood, but Dee Dee accepted for Habitat for Humanity to build a home for them. Like they built their house for them and they accepted trips to Disneyland and they received a lot of kind of like GoFundMe equivalents. And the problem with all of this is Gypsy wasn't sick. She wasn't like, what this actually was, was a really terrible and sad case of factitious disorder. So so what is factitious disorder? Factitious disorder it was previously known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Yeah, see, I've been hearing Munchausen syndrome by proxy everywhere, but I had never heard factitious disorder. So I think it's now factitious disorder, but you might otherwise have heard of it as because yeah. that's what it was called before is Munchausen syndrome. But it's when someone falsely claims that another person has physical or psychological signs or symptoms of illness or causes injury or disease to another person with the intention of deceiving others. Mm-hmm. It's so specific. It's, yeah. And crazy they've actually had to make this a thing. Like and that how, it's changed names. Like, uh, how often is this happening? I mean, this has to be one of the most extreme cases mm-hmm. of it, but it it does happen. So it really was just a really awful case of child abuse. And Gypsy wasn't even sure herself how old she was. Like, her mother kept changing her age, telling her different ages. But as Gypsy reached her teenage years, she began questioning things. And she would ask, like, why do I look so different from everyone else? And why can't I talk to boys? And why don't I sound like my peers? And then it turned into, like, what's actually wrong with me? And, like, questioning her medical issues. Around that time when Gypsy started questioning and pushing back on her mom a bit is when her mother also became quite physically abusive. Um, Like, Gypsy alleges that she would be sometimes caught trying to stand up out of her wheelchair and her mother would then chain Gypsy to a bed and beat her with coat hangers. And then by 2014, when she was about 18, but she was actually 23, nearly 24. Whoa, but she believed she was 18? Yeah. Gypsy convinced her mum to let her buy a laptop and she used this laptop then to start meeting men online and searching for a boyfriend, which she would like say she was looking for her prince and like her fairy tale love. And she found it sort of. Gypsy matched with this guy on Christian singles called Nicholas Godejon, who was 24 years old. And Nicholas actually had a criminal record at the time for indecent exposure and a history of mental illness. The two of them chatted online for about a year, of course, keeping their relationship secret from her mother. And then over the messages, they were planning to marry. They were planning on ways they could bump into each other in the real world so that they could like slowly introduce him to Dee Dee. However, when that was looking unlikely and the abuse got a lot worse, the two instead hatched a plan to kill Dee Dee. And in 2015, Gypsy let Nicholas into a house. She gave him a knife, duct tape and gloves. She then hid in the bathroom while he murdered her mother. A few days later, a Facebook status was posted on Dee Dee's account and it read, I fucking slashed that fat pig and raped her sweet innocent daughter. Her scream was so fucking loud, lol. Jesus. I know. So I think the aim of that post was to make it look like a random had hacked and that, like, obviously that Gypsy had nothing to do with it and was a victim herself. The police, obviously, once they saw that Facebook post, entered the home, found Dee Dee's body, found Gypsy was gone. They pretty quickly cottoned on to the secret boyfriend from 
I think they, I don't know if they saw her laptop or whatever it was. They then searched the IP address of the Facebook status, which led them directly to the boyfriend's house. And the two of them were arrested. Nicholas was then given life sentence without parole for first degree murder, but Gypsy accepted a plea bargain agreement in 2016 for 10 years with second degree murder. I think this is really interesting too. Like, what was her life like in jail? Like, what was her experience after having this happen? You know what's crazy? It's like you'd think jail would be, you know, it's punishment. You're supposed to have a terrible time in jail. Gypsy flourished. She thrived. She got her GED. She got her high school diploma. She rekindled her relationship with her extended family and with her dad. And she studied photography. She also did different interviews where she seemed to be like quite upbeat in them. Essentially, when she would explain it, she was like, I'm enjoying, even though I'm in jail, she's enjoying autonomy for the first time in her Mm. life, which is just crazy. Like that's an insane concept that jail would be where you explore autonomy for the first time in your life. Yeah. She then also met this guy called Ryan Scott Anderson and he reached out to her after seeing a docuseries, I believe it was, about her and her mother and wrote her a letter in jail and those two became pen pals and then they were engaged and then they got married. In jail, while she was in jail. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and she's like 32 at the time of this. Like, Right, and so what? what's the latest? What's, so, what's the update? Okay, so now thanks for coming on that journey. I'm now up yeah. to like modern day. Okay, so at the very end of last year, Gypsy became eligible for parole and she was released. And since then, Gypsy has been on like a media frenzy. And she did all these morning shows. She did podcasts. She did like Nick Viles podcast as well. She was very active on her social media. She has like over like 10 million followers on TikTok now. And like, I think the last time I checked was like 8.3 million on Instagram. Huge Huge followings, huge numbers, which has just pretty much created this huge stan culture for her. I'm sure you've seen this because it became like a meme in itself, but like obviously everyone had huge reactions to the doco series. People were going straight to their social media to share their opinions on Ryan, on them, on their relationship. And she then posted, like started commenting under his photos, don't listen to the haters, how they don't owe anyone anything. And besides, they just jealous because you are rocking my world every night. Yeah, I said it. The D is fire. The capital D capital is Capital D. The is capital fire. D is fire. Which obviously everyone thought was just the funniest thing. Who's who speaks like that? Imagine like that. being introduced to social media and within like weeks you that that's what you're commenting. I know. And like obviously social media is eating this up. They love her and almost in equal parts. You can see this discourse about, like, are we skyrocketing who is essentially a murderer to fame? But what I think is the most interesting is that this woman who has had, like, she didn't even know what her own age was for so long. She's had no sense of control over her own life until the past two weeks. And she has now been thrown into the real world, given an audience of millions. And she would have no real understanding of how social media works, let alone life. And... I just think that's an insane concept. And you could even see there was this thing where she did a Get Ready With Me video. It has over like 35 million views on it. And you can hear this woman behind her talking. And then Gypsy says, how does a Get Ready With Me work? And then the woman tries to tell her who Alex Earl is and has to show her an Alex Earl video to explain what a Get Ready With Me is so that Gypsy then knows how to do it. 
It's whoa. I, I mean, I don't know who Alex Earl is, so I feel a bit of a gypsy. Sorry, uh, what? I, I don't know who. Like, I actually tried to Google her the other day because I wasn't sure. We're gonna have to circle back to that. I know, but that's, that's just a, that's just a comment oh for the crowd. Oh my god! You know me, Queen. I, I don't. I don't know how you. <laughs> no, I don't. But what I was going to say is. I ultimately feel really, I actually feel worried for Gypsy because looking at this as broadly as I can, she is someone that the most trusted person in her life deeply betrayed and used her and Mm. controlled her. And it it was the only key figure in her life. The only key figure. And so I think that her attachment system, her her ability to have a healthy relationship with herself, to understand herself, to progress in the world, virtually impossible, right? She's done such a good job considering what she's achieved in while she was in prison and she's really just trying to make a life for herself by positively using the brand that she has and the reputation she has. What I predict is that she's going to have a very quick, very rapid skyrocket, which has occurred, and she will plummet because people will turn on her because that's what people do. Yeah, I I agree. And I also think people are, you can see these TikToks and, and analysis on her and her body language and the way she speaks to her husband and everyone's like, oh, she's she's really manipulative to him and she's she's also like she's kind of insane and it's like yeah you would be she is you would be you tell me how to go through what a healthy relationship absolutely she's only met this guy in person like also she is complicit in murder all of these things are true and exist all of this is trauma all of this like yeah you're right honestly i just hope she has the right support and guidance from the people that are now in her life to make it through as she tries to navigate a normal life from here absolutely Opposition leader Peter Dutton is upset that Woolworths isn't selling temporary flag tattoos anymore, but doesn't seem to mind that Australians have to use afterpay or sell a kidney to buy a bag of cheese at the supermarket giant. Thank you. I love this. This is like a two-story-in-one combo. I know. There's so much here to unpack. And so really this story is about January 26th being this Friday. And while it is still a public holiday that is formally recognised as Australia Day, every year we're having the same social discussions about what this date means and whether it should be changed or abolished. That's part of the conversation as well. And more and more people are referring to this as Invasion Day rather than Australia Day. Mm. So the January 26th public holiday is designed or formally designed to commemorate the establishment of the first British colony in Australia and the beginning of colonisation. Obviously, for many First Nations people, the day represents the beginning of a genocide. It's a day of mourning. It's a day of deep pain and hurt. One of the common misconceptions I also want to get into straight away is that there's this idea that this is some long-standing centuries-old tradition in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's literally been a public holiday nationally since 1994. Paul Mm. Keating introduced it. I know that it was in different states for different times, but this is not something that we've celebrated forever. This is quite, like, looking at it, it's quite fresh. Yeah. Um, And so it it is something, I think the point of me saying that is, this is not a set in stone thing, nothing is. And one of the points that I made, you know, a year ago was the government introduced a public holiday for the death of Queen Elizabeth II, like, within a few days, yet they refused to change or even consider the conversation so far about changing the date of a public holiday. Yeah, I think so much of the argument is in tradition and it's like it's just actually not a tradition. No, it's, it's not a tradition. not a tradition. It's yeah. not. So putting that aside for a second, what has happened with Woolworths? So the supermarket giant announced on January 11th that they will not be selling Australia Day merchandise this year, which I associate with plastic flags, plastic cups, plastic beer hats, temporary flag tattoos, cheap shit that goes in landfill anyway. Basically, 
when Woolworths announced that they were not selling this merchandise anymore, they cited a decline in sales in recent years and basically saying we need to be having a discussion about what it means in the community to have this date at the moment. And so it's really twofold. It's that there's not the sales, but also it's offensive and we're having a conversation about that and it's changing. Which is really interesting that the sales are reflecting that. That's pretty huge from a supermarket giant that clearly this boycotting on this day is having an effect and enough people are doing it. Also, Woolworths was backed by News Corp for a long period of time. Like, it's really interesting that it's them to me too. Mm. Then opposition leader Peter Dutton gets on 2GB radio and calls the Australia Day change conversation an outrage and told Australians they should boycott Woolworths. (laughs) He basically went on radio and said... I don't want to go into Woolworths and be told how I need to vote or how I feel about Australia Day. You're not. The supermarket giant is making a decision, I doubt, on morals and more so on, like, a business thing and sales. Also because they are taking a big risk by engaging in this sort of a discussion with someone like Mm -hmm. Peter Dutton by Mm -hmm. making... Like, it it wouldn't be a call that would be made lightly. You know what I mean? Like, they are taking a business risk and I respect the shit out of them for that. I'm not a Woolworths shopper. Suddenly I was going to Woolworths because of this. But I really want to be clear on this. Dutton is stoking the culture wars and he is trying to create division and create tension and polarise people and cause a fight and cause a stir and really get bigots loud and proud about Australia Day when I don't think that's the conversation at all. I don't think that's the conversation we'd be having. And I'm interested in the fact he's less keen to talk about price gouging, um, the cost of living, and more inclined to make it this culture war that divides people and upsets people about whether temporary flag tattoos are stocked. Because... Mm -hmm. Really, what's interesting to me, and I know a lot of the people listening to this podcast are people that support changing the date or abolishing the date. I'm sure there are a few people that support keeping the date. Mm. But the one thing that I always come back to in relation to the January 26th conversation is, why does it hurt people so much? the idea of changing the date. Mm. This isn't a long-standing tradition. It doesn't hurt you to change anything. And I always worry about like the reason we're digging our heels in. Like if there are people in my, you know, in my family, in my friendship circles that are sort of like, oh, my family's really against changing the date. And the question I want to ask is why? Because when this date can't be celebrated by all people and can't be engaged in, why are we so opposed to making a change so that all people can feel included and welcome and happy to have a day off? Well, that's just it. Everyone's a public holiday. Everyone's to enjoy a day off. Yeah, that's the thing. about that. I'd love that. Also, we're seeing heaps of other organisations change their approach to the day. So Cricket Australia have announced that they actually won't be mentioning January 26th being Australia Day during their broadcast this year. Mm. The tennis is already doing that. They started doing that last year. Now, lots of different news presenters have got elbow on and sort of been like, this is outrageous. And he said, like, I think you're engaging in outrage culture. I think it's their decision sort of thing was his response. Whereas the New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, was like, I'm going to be enjoying Australia Day and I think Cricket Australia should rethink their decision. So we're even seeing within the Labor Party, like, all this division There's over the division stance. Over it, yeah. We're also seeing major corporations, many of the big four banks, Deloitte, KPMG, Telstra, offering to their employees to work January 26th and take another day elsewhere. Mm. which I think is a great alternative. I I know abolish the date is another argument. I'm personally just for let's find a date that isn't going to offend a huge and important part of our population. I think that changing the date is the pragmatic approach because while I support the abolish the date concept and why people want to make huge change and reform before we even celebrate our nation, I 
understand and agree. I think for pragmatic purposes, the idea of ripping a public holiday away from people will never get anyone to agree. I think the idea of actually changing the date and having a deep conversation with First Nations people, especially following the referendum, I know this is a very painful time still. I think having that broader conversation about what we can do to make this a date that is available for everyone to be included in is the first step. Yeah. Award shows are finally award showing again. The recent string of events continues to give us gossip, memes, upsets and wins and we are all collectively loving it. I'm going to power through this because I honestly don't know where to stop and start with it all and we do not have enough time. No time. There's been so much. And so we're going to give a really quick wrap on what were a few of my most memorable moments. I'm going to start with the Golden Globes. Kind of can't mention the Golden Globes without mentioning host Joe Coy's monologue. Never heard of him before this. <laughs> yeah, so he's a comedian. He actually has a few stand-up specials. I also hadn't heard of him before this. He tanked this oh. monologue. We got so many messages asking for our take on this. I think it's pretty succinct with the discourse that's happened over the last week or two since this. But pretty much the two big moments from the speech was he compared Oppenheimer to Barbie. And he did it in a really just kind of crass way. He described Oppenheimer as being based on a 721-page Pulitzer Prize-winning book and Barbie as a movie about a plastic doll with big boobies. And what was... I mean, it's one thing to hear that comment, but another thing to see the reaction in the room. The crowd went mild. Yeah. Like, no one gave him any... No bars no, for that but joke. But it, it, like... Aside from the offence caused and how it completely reduced the movie to nothing and to, like, objectification, sexualization of a woman, right, of a doll, it wasn't funny. Like, even 10 years ago when that sort that of shit flew thing. a little bit better, it was still a terrible joke. You know what I thought was really interesting? Again, obviously this happened a while ago, but who's spoken out since? And I saw in a BBC Radio 4 interview after the Globes, Greta Gerwig actually weighed in when they asked her about the opening monologue. And she said... <laughs> Well, he's not wrong. She's the first doll that was mass-produced with breasts, so he was right on. And, you know, I think that so much of the project of the movie was unlikely because it is about plastic. Barbie, by her very construction, has no character, no story. She's there to be projected upon. Great way to take that. Perfect response from Greta Gerwig. She just so rose above it and was so articulate and without needing to slam at him either. Class act. Class Genuine. Act. And you know when someone's being mean without being mean? Like, it's a quip, but it's like you can't point to where it is. You just know it's there. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, perfect comment. Um, the other thing that he made comment on was Taylor Swift. And he pretty much said, the big difference between the Golden Globes and the NFL, at the Golden Globes, we have fewer camera shots of Taylor Swift. After hearing the joke, Taylor Swift, like, made this face and sipped her drink and it went viral it became a meme as as expected I actually think because her reaction was making such a face that that's probably also why that comment got so much more traction and as much as the Barbie movie we were kind of talking about this earlier I think it was a dumb joke I just think it wasn't that funny more than anything but was I surprised to hear that joke no that's no. been the joke for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. It was an obvious joke to make. doesn't make it a good joke, but I wasn't... I am I was surprised that everyone else was so surprised that that joke was the, made. It, it shouldn't have been compared to the Barbie joke. The Barbie joke was like downright offensive. I yeah. think the Taylor Swift joke, what it did for me was you had so much opportunity to make quite a significant joke about Taylor as like the leading person of the year, basically, and you kind of reduce her to her boyfriend. Exactly. That's the only point I have on it. I also thought it was interesting that later in interviews... 
Uh, he actually said it was the Taylor Swift comment that he regretted the most. Fucking weird. When, when someone actually said, what do, you, what do you regret most? His response was, I think it was when the Taylor Swift one was just a little flat. It was a weird joke, I guess, but it was more on the NFL. I was trying to make fun of the NFL using cutaways and how the Globes didn't have to do that. So it was more of a jab towards the NFL, but it just didn't come out that way. However, a lot of really big shot comedians have come out and actually supported Joe. That includes two of my favourite people, Steve Martin and Tina Fey. I did see Steve Martin. So Steve Martin just made the point that it's a really tough gig. And Tina then reiterated that in an interview. And Tina said, yeah, you don't get a lot of time on this. You get no dress rehearsal. And it's a pretty thankless job. It goes one of two ways. Either people say, okay, great, now do it again. Or no, we didn't like it. And there's no in between. Which is, I think, is a really good point. I don't think there's any real winners for hosts. It's I don't know why you'd ever do it, to be honest. I also think that kind of reflects what Joe Coy said on stage even, where he was like, I only got 10 days to do this. I don't think that's the best excuse. I also don't think you do that during a performance. It's like breaking character. You know? I think that's how, but I think that indicates how yeah. much he knew yeah. it was going wrong. The other moment I wanted to point out was Lily Gladstone, who became the first Indigenous person to win a Golden Globe for Best Actress for her role in Killers at the Flower Moon. This was amazing. Yeah. And really really. overlooked because of the Joe Coy stuff, which is unfortunate. Agreed, agreed. And I haven't actually seen that yet, but it's on my list. I'm really keen to. Obviously, I have to shout out Kylie and Timothy Chamolet's PDA. Uh, It was like watching an NBA kiss cam. Every time there was an ad break, it just shot immediately to them. I kind of loved it. Oh, I loved it. Oh, great. We're on the same page because I I was like prepared to hate them, but I was like, oh. No, I kind of wanted to hate them. And I was like, they're quite cute. And obviously there was the footage that cut to of Taylor Swift, Selena Gomez and Kaylee all looking like they were just talking shit on camera. And I loved it. I love that the lip reading videos are out of control. Like everyone trying to figure out what they were saying to each other. Pretty much the running theory though, which came out straight after the Globes on like what they were saying to each other is it does look like Selena was telling them that she asked for a photo with Timothy Chalamet and Kylie said no. Did you see that? I, I did, but I'm, I'm not, I wasn't sure that's what the actual consensus was. Oh, we don't know if that is actually what was said, but that is yeah. definitely, the, that was the first the, the theory to come out and that is the front runner. Yeah. Would you personally tell if like a random girl, not random, they're actually like friends, who knows, but like if a girl came up and wanted a photo with your boyfriend, would you have the balls to be like, no? I think that it's more than that. She would feel territorial about the Taylor Swift connection and therefore she would blanket no. I kind of love the blanket no. There's so much more context to that. I think there is too, but I also just, I love being a bit of a psycho girlfriend. But I would simply never, like if I was dating someone who was famous, I would never stop someone from doing that. No, I don't think I'd ever have the balls to do it, but I I admire it. Mm. And then to the Critics' Choice Awards, shout out to Ryan Gosling's reaction to I'm Just Ken winning. He looked so confused. And I think it was also just because everyone thought Billie Eilish would win for what was I made for and that she'd won at the Golden Globes before and everyone just thought that would continue. So it was a bit of a surprise win for him. His face to me communicated, I know my Ken song is not supposed to win. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Like I agree. it's disappointing. I really yeah. hope they make him sing it at the Oscars. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh. Uh, the other thing I wanted to shout out from the Critic Choice Awards was Chelsea Handler hosting. She did a really good job with it. And I just think it's really funny. I don't know if a lot of people know it, but Joe Coy is her ex-boyfriend. How funny is 
Yeah, and she had a dig, didn't she? She did. Kind of when the audience laughed at one of her jokes, she said, my writers wrote it. Yeah. Which was a dig at him because he kind of blamed his writers for the bad jokes he was given. But she kind of just ran with the themes, the year of the woman, year of the horniness, Gwyneth Paltrow's ski trial, and she also made fun of herself. There was a lot more that happened at the Critics' Choice Awards, but we're on a time crunch, so we're going to get into the Emmys. Have to shout out the emotional Matthew Perry Friends tribute that happened. And also the huge thing that happened there was Elton John became an EGOT. Wow. Elton! Elton John became an EGOT. So he won for Elton John Live Farewell from Dodger Stadium. And he became the 19th person to earn the title of an EGOT, which I think like Audrey Hepburn, Whoopi Goldberg are two other people. I don't even know who else is on that list. But the EGOT is perhaps the most coveted title in all of entertainment industry because what it means is that you've won in four of the most prestigious awards possible. So that's an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, respectfully. Amazing. Huge And then the only other thing that, like, again, this is such a watered-down version of what happened, but the other thing that made me quite emotional was Christina Applegate's standing ovation. Christina came out and she presented an award and got this huge round of applause, big standing ovation, which left her in tears. I don't know if people know, but she has been really ill. She has multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Yeah. She has MS, and she was really funny when she got up there. She quipped, you were totally shaming me with, with a disability by standing up. And then she continued to joke that her body was not biozempic. Pop off queen. So funny. Okay, thank you for all coming on that journey with us. First episode of the year back. It's so good to be back. If you did want to send us any questions or if you had any comments, feedback, queries, whatever it is, uh, you can send us a message on bigsmalltalk underscore pod. Before we get into that, it's time for the Q&A. Yes. And so this Q&A has been sent in by Samantha this week, and she's asking about the ABC unfair dismissal case with journalist Antoinette Latouf. I know. This was such a big story as well, but we just were like, how do we How do we incorporate, how do we even this? incorporate this without it getting too confusing? So I'm really glad that this is here because it is so, so worth noting. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really something that's sort of linking what's happening in Australia as the fallout from all of the media coverage and the political sort of like the politicization of what's happening in Gaza. Yeah. But I'm going to run through it really quick for people. So so basically Antoinette Latouf is claiming that she was unlawfully terminated by the ABC during a short-term contract where she appeared on ABC Sydney Radio for a week in December. Mm-hmm. She was dismissed on the third day of that stint of that contract. Basically, she claimed she was dismissed after sharing a post on social media about the war in Gaza. She's seeking a detailed public apology from the ABC, compensation for harm to reputation and for distress and humiliation. And she's also seeking an order that the ABC offer her a rollback on air. Wow. Yeah. So the submissions from the ABC, because this is now in the Fair Work Commission, it went to the Fair Work Commission last week. It hasn't been resolved yet, which is notable. So this will continue on. Yeah. But what's her evidence? The context of the this is that the post she shared during that week of being on radio was from the organisation Human Rights Watch, and it specifically accused Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza. So what's interesting to me is that the national public broadcaster is claiming that Latouf's allegation is fundamentally misconceived and that she was asked not to post about matters of controversy, but failed to comply with that request. Now, 
Latouf is claiming unlawful termination during this short-term contract on the grounds of political opinion or a reason that included political opinion, and she's later expanded the claim to include race because she's of Lebanese heritage. So that's the claim she's putting forward, and the ABC is obviously denying that. What's also quite important, I think, here is that since these allegations have been put forward, There have been leaked messages from multiple WhatsApp groups. One was from a group named Lawyers for Israel. These individuals who were part of this chat expressed that they had written letters to the ABC board and senior management calling for her dismissal. Mm. So now there is a belief there's been external pressure and lobbying to have Antoinette Latouf removed from the ABC Mm. that this group has sort of enforced on them by going to the top dogs, basically. But I also saw a pedestrian article last night that a second WhatsApp group chat called Jewish Australian Creators and Academics helped coordinate a campaign to pressure the ABC to file a tooth. There were messages encouraging the 628 members of this group to contact Ida Butrose and the ABC Managing Director and the Communications Minister, Michelle Rowland, to complain. Yeah. It's just crazy that this is the ABC. Absolutely. It's absolutely what, and it really points to the fact that the there's been impact on all media organisations as to the reporting that's occurring in Gaza and the real politicisation of this across journalism, civilians, everyone is affected by this and is unable to have healthy conversations about it. Thank you so much for listening this week and we hope you enjoyed it. It's so good to be back. If you have, again, any questions, anything you want to send us, send it on bigsmalltalk underscore pod. And if you wanted to like, subscribe, leave a comment, tap the bell, and we will see you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.